Welcome to Season 3, Episode 2 of Beyond the Zero. I'm your host Ben, joining me today is Sarah Lippman. Sarah's a writer. Her debut novel, Lech, is out now through Tortoise Books. Welcome to the show, Sarah. Thanks so much for having me, Ben. It's great to be here. <laughs> How's life in Brooklyn? Uh, it's beautiful. I love it. I love this time of year. Um, Prospect Park is so colorful. And um, I'm, I'm a runner, and this is the season to get out running because it's finally not so hot and it's not yet too cold. <laughs> so we are in the sweet spot of fall season, which happens to be my favorite season. Um, and yeah, Brooklyn is alive. It is such a vibrant little area, isn't it? Do you want to tell us about, I guess, the art scene in Brooklyn? Yeah, well, okay. So I live right now. I mean, I've been in Brooklyn since, um, oh gosh, since 1990. I moved to New York right after college in 97. And then I think I came to Brooklyn in, in 98. Um, and I've been here for a long time in, in various neighborhoods. But for the last 10 years or so, I've been living in a neighborhood called Dipmas Park, which um, many, many years ago, like when my mother was a child in Brooklyn, this was known as like doctor's row. So a lot of physicians had offices, home offices here, because it's kind of like the Ohio of Brooklyn. Um, it's all sort of um, rumbling Victorian homes. It doesn't look like a city at all. Um, but now, um, yeah, now it's sort of, a, I mean, obviously Brooklyn is, is glutted with writers, all neighborhoods. You kind of can't, um, spit on the sidewalk not that you would want to spit on the sidewalk but you kind of can't spit without hitting a writer um but yeah so there there are a ton of writers here I'm looking out my window my next door neighbor is a writer and her husband upstairs is a is a visual artist and so they each have a studio um there are there are a ton of musicians here in this neighborhood and a ton of um visual artists because um I mean now now real the real estate market is bonkers and it's everything is expensive but there was a period of time where this was a great area for value um, so that there are a lot of working artists who live here um, in this community, which has been actually great through COVID. So, um, you know, we could actually, you know, be outside and get together and gather with our, with our community um, through COVID. A friend of mine across the street had this wonderful um, porch concert series for a lot of the local musicians. That's actually was such a success that it's still going strong. So we just, you know, from about May until October, we have, these wonderful um, porch concerts that are going on two to three um, on a weekend. It's really lovely. So the community is quite, quite tight. Amazing. Okay. You've published two previous short story collections, The Doll Palace and Jerks. You've got an MFA from the New School. You teach. Uh, do you want to tell us a bit about your background and how you got into writing? Sure. Um, so I do feel like I was writing from I mean I wasn't one of those kids that was like writing books from when I was four my daughter went through that stage where like every four minutes she would write a book and she would say I mommy I wrote I wrote five books today how many did you write <laughs> I'm like fuck off um <laughs> but uh um yes yeah, so no I wasn't like that kid but I I think I you know I, I started writing maybe um you know a little bit in middle school you know elementary school here and there and then um and then in high school, I sort of got interested. I think I took my first creative writing course in high school. I was always doing like journalism because um, I didn't really see an avenue to writing other than journalism. Um, so yeah, so I did journalism. I mean, I did do creative writing in college, but I was always like writing for the paper, that kind of thing. Um, not not straight news, more like, um, you know, like uh, features and op-ed kind of stuff. And then um, when I graduated from university, I went right into, into magazines. Um, so uh, that was kind of the direction that I took. Um, I was always sort of taking fiction, like creative writing classes on the side and at night. And um, one, of the, one of the few wonderful perks of working in magazines in the 90s was that we had all these incredible, I mean, our salary was shit, but we had these incredible um, benefits where we could take all these classes and, and, um, I worked for Condé Nast and they paid for it. So I could take, I took a lot of creative writing classes while I was there. Um, and then ultimately left, um, and went and pursued an MFA in 
um, went into teaching and so forth, but that was kind of my avenue um, to writing. And with your writing, did you start with the short pieces and did you start just writing a few of those? Like how did that work in terms of getting collections together? Yeah. Um, so it's interesting. I mean, again, I, I could, I could um, gripe about MFA programs. I, um, I feel like my MFA programs kind of encourage you to produce a certain kind of story that lends itself to workshop of a certain length and so forth. So, you know, when I was in my early twenties and I was doing that, I was sort of churning out these stories that, you know, could be brought into workshop of a certain length and what have you. And then, um, once, um, once, I became a parent, um, or even when I think I was, you know, I was teaching quite a bit before, you know, when I was pregnant and so forth. Um, I just, I mean, I believe in fallow periods. So there was a lot of time that I took off from writing entirely. And then when I got back to the page, I was a, you know, I was a young frazzled mom without any childcare. And it just felt so overwhelming to me, the idea of like, you know, forget about sitting down to write an, a novel, any sort of sustained narrative, much less a 20, you know, or, you know, a, a 20 page story that felt, again, too overwhelming. But that's when I really started to fall in love with flash fiction, um, which um, I'd been exposed to a little bit. We used to call it short shorts um, when I was in college. Um, but but the whole flash, there's just been such a wonderful flash fiction, a sort of proliferation of the flash fiction community, largely um, because of the internet. And so um, when I was feeling so kind of alienated from from people and um intellectual stimulation when I was with you know home with um my son who's now 17 um I sort of fell into into reading flash and then I found that that was um much more manageable to me so the idea of like okay I don't have the time to write a long story but I can write you know 500 words or a thousand words um and so from there um that's how I really got back to the page and that's how my first collection came about and then um you know, once they got older, I had more time on my hand and, and narratives started to stretch and expand um, with my own schedule. Um, one of the other things I wanted to ask you about briefly before we got on to Lech was um, Sunday Salon that you used to host. Do you want to tell us about that experience? Sure. So the Sunday Salon reading series was founded um, in 2002 um, by two friends of mine who were um, also at the new school um, and an MFA program. And um, it was the longest running, I think it was the longest running monthly series in the city for a while. I mean, so it, it moved all over. It was, it was um, in Morningside Heights, it was in Williamsburg, and then it was in the East Village. And so we sort of bounced, um, but the, but even though our venue switched up, um, it, it remained this continuous series, largely um, thanks, well, entirely thanks to Nita Novino, who was the founding uh, one of the founding co-hosts and she stayed. And then when the other co-host um, left the city, I kind of stepped in um, to the co-hosting role. And um, yeah, it was one of the most nourishing and inspiring experiences getting to meet so many, so many writers and um, have them come through our space often before they kind of quote unquote made it huge, you know, so they would still, you know, be able to, uh, <laughs> you know, patronize our, our humble, our humble stage, which was really, really nice. And um, it was always a gift. And I remember, I mean, the only thing I don't want to say about it, I mean, I can, I can talk about some of the wonderful, wonderful authors that we've had over the years, but um, it's one of those things, like, again, when you're a young parent and Sunday night rolls around and there's so much going on and you're feeling so frazzled and you're thinking, how can I possibly just drop everything and get into the city and do this thing? Um, it was always just such an incredible gift, both, you know, selfishly for myself, but also to be a part of this, um, this experience where um, writers would come in and share and share their work. Um, and I always walked out energized and inspired. So I'm really grateful for those years. Give us maybe five of the authors you had through who you really were inspired by. Yeah, sure. I mean, well, okay, so we had Roxanne Gay um, came through. Um, we've had Jamal May, um, incredible poet. We've had uh, uh, Matthew Salisis. We've had um, Kathy Chung, who actually uh, blurred my novel. She's incredible. Um, gosh, I mean, we've had so many 
so I'm trying to think of who else is, is a real, um, I mean, God, my God, so many standouts. I'm trying to think of who else do I want to, um, Julie Innes came in from Ohio. Um, Kathy Fish came in from Colorado and Kathy Fish. I mean, I would say, of course, she's, she's, uh, such a terrific flash fiction writer and it has been a, uh, tremendous influence on me. Um, yeah, I'm trying to think of who else. I mean, just mil. I mean, if you go to the website, there's just <laughs> so, so, so many. So it was really, um, it was a tremendous time. All right, let's move on to Lech. It's set in the Catskills. It features five protagonists. We've got Paige, Beth, Noreen, Svee, and the eponymous Ira Lecha. Before we talk about the plot, can you take us to the Catskills? Give us some of the background about your setting and I guess some of your experience in the Catskills. Yeah, so, okay. Um, so I did not grow up going to the Catskills. Um, at all. Um, I grew up going to um, Wayne County, Pennsylvania. So a little bit of a geography lesson. There's there are the Catskills. And then on the other side of the Delaware River, there's Pocono Mountains. So I grew up going, you know, I, I, I'm born in New York. I'm from New York. My family's from New York, but I grew up in Philadelphia. So um, Philadelphians mostly would go to the Poconos. So I went to the Poconos, not, not, um, I mean, I would do a little skiing there, but I, but I went there as, as a, as a kid, I went to summer camp. So I went to a fairly traditional, um, Jewish summer camp. Um, and, um, then, um, when I started writing this book, I was, but I guess I should say, I'm just going to table that and say, but I was always sort of obsessed with, um, with the Catskills, with the idea of the of of it being having been, you know, the former Borscht Belt having been sort of the hotbed of um, Jewish comedy um, that had kind of, you know, um, fallen into disarray um, once you know everybody sort of started going to Acapulco and other places and so forth. So, like this idea, I was always sort of darkly fascinated with the, uh, um, you know, the old hotels. Saw them, in, you know, immortalized in Dirty Dancing. Of course, the movie was not even filmed there. Um, but um, that was kind of like always somewhat of a, of a, of a beat for me. Um, but yeah, so when I started um, writing this story, um, I was I was spending some of my summers up at that same Jewish camp. Um, now as an adult, um, after a 20 year hiatus, I had brought my kids back. I was teaching creative writing up there. Um, so that um, a lot of the observations that I was making about you know, cultural tension, anti-Semitic sentiment and stuff stem from, from Wayne County um, that I'd made both as a child and as an adult. Um, on my days off, I would go to Sullivan County, which is where the novel takes place. Um, and that's where, you know, um, that's that's what the Borscht Belt is, you know, and that's where, you know, immigrants would, would flee the city hoping to evade a polio outbreak and, um, you know, the, the old hotels and of course also the bungalow colonies, um, which were, you know, so rich for me. So I was kind of, I, I had sort of like a voyeuristic obsession, uh, with this region. And then I would, um, then I did a, a, a tremendous amount of research, um, over years, partly why the book took so long, because I really was, you know, hesitant. Um, and I mean, obviously there it's, I'm combining. So the region is real, um, the region is real a lot. Most all the towns mentioned are real, but there are a, a ton of fictional elements. So like I invented the hospital, I invented like a, a lot of things. And so I just wanted to make sure that I was, um, you know, doing, doing it, um, properly and doing it with, um, enough sensitivity and um, thoughtfulness. So it took a long time. And then um, I will say just ironically, you know, the book went out on submission um, in the pandemic of 2020 and my summer camp where I had been working um, had closed. Um, and we found ourselves, my whole family found ourselves living in an old Borscht Belt bungalow colony, <laughs> um, not in Sullivan County, but farther, um, like, I mean, farther south, closer to the city, actually near the community of uh, Kiriaz Yoel, um, uh, in, which is a, a Satmar community um, in Orange County. So, so it was interesting that now, and now I, I do go back to this um, bungalow colony in the summers. So I'd never gone there before 2020, but now um, in the last couple of summers, I've been, I've been going up there. 
um, as well. So that's been interesting and fortuitous. <laughs> it's such an interesting setting for your book because I feel like there's there's this history of Jewish novels that kind of have this element of summer that is set in that area. And I go back to Roth, like I went back to Roth thinking about this book and things like The Professor of Desire, which is kind of set up there for a fair bit of the novel. Um, even, you know, there's just so many books like that that just have this massive aspect, um, especially with Jewish writing, like, you know, from the 50s onwards, just seems to really engage with the Catskills. Right. Well, I mean, it's so rich, you know, mm. I mean, and the, and, and that. I'm not a comedian, but like the history of Jewish comedy is so rich and, you know, just, you know, obviously, um, you know, misery loves comedy. And so it's, mm. it's, it's, it's really, um, I, I don't know. I, I, um, I think it's kind of irresistible. I also think it's, it's such a wonderful, um, I, I, I've said this before that it's not just the Catskills in the heyday. Like I'm not being sentiment. I hope I'm not being sentimental here. I'm actually really what's interested interesting to me is sort of Catskills decay and sort of the the rotting elements, um, and also how rot feeds new life. Um, but uh, yeah, so that that's that's sort of the the angle that I was really sort of going for. And I again, I found I find it. Um, irresistible also like deeply American as sort of a microcosm um and that was um I didn't anticipate that going in but then writing it and then writing through the election and the years that followed it really became so clear to me that this region was also such a such a keen window onto um how we arrived at at Trump country mm. let's talk about the title so it's Lech um but it also is Lech which is the Hebrew word for go um, from the Pasha of the same name, Lech Lecha. It also has kind of quite a lot of, I guess, aspects where the protagonist, uh, Ira Lecha, is the also the eponymous title of the book, um, which feeds back into books like Herzog and other things. Uh, do you want to tell us about the title and I guess the multiple meanings of, of the title? Yeah, for sure. Okay, so... <laughs> Um, yeah, you're absolutely right. First of all, I love that you, I love that you said just now that, um, this, this idea of like last name, um, you know, last name, male, last name, big book, male author. Um, and that was something that, um, I was definitely engaging with. I mean, I think I, I do, I don't know if it's, this sounds like arrogant or what have you, but I do feel like this book is in conversation with some of the books that I was raised on, largely the, you know, male Jewish canon. Um, and so, yes, growing up with books like Stern, books like Herzog, um, and yeah, I, I felt like this was, I mean, again, I wanted to play with a lot of the tropes that um I've been brought up with and also subvert them so yes that was that was it was deliberate for me to 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 make this um his name um but of course his name is Letcher so there's like again that wink um so yes this is a novel about predation it's a novel of, that looks at the predatory aspects of human nature in general not not merely limited to um Iris character I think that all of the characters in this you know there are five points of view um I think all of them um have predatory elements to them, to their characters. So I was really looking at that. And, um, and then of course, um, the extent to which, you know, the novel has a central imperative, that imperative would be, um, yeah, from the, from Genesis, Lech Lecha, um, how to go forth, how to go forth um, and build your life, but also the twofold, for me, at least it felt very twofold of both like looking inward, um, to oneself before one can go outward. Um, so, so that was sort of the the double imperative of the book, and hopefully the characters um, do move a little bit <laughs> from A to B um, over the course of the novel. Well, let's talk about the plot. The novel, I guess, revolves around your central character you mentioned, Ira Lecha. Um, he's an older man. He is quite lecherous. He rents out a house by the lake. His new client is Beth, the young woman with the small boy. She's recently had an abortion, moved to the town. She sends her son to a local Lubavitch day camp. And then you've got Svi, who's a young, stubborn drug dealer, um, whose mother drowned in the lake 
where um, Ira lives. Um, you've got Noreen, who's a sketchy real estate agent, Paige, her daughter, and they all kind of cross in and out of each other's lives over the summer. Do you want to tell us a bit more about your protagonist and the general plot of the book? Sure. I mean, so the, the general plot is it's about the potential sale of this property that's owned by two families, a local family, a farm family named Trawler and Ira. Um, and uh, Noreen is trying to finagle the sale. Um, and, you know, hopefully with that, you know, gain some gain some financial independence and some some selfhood. Um, that is that is like the very thin wrapping, but it is really a very much about, like I said, how how to go forth um, in your own life. So each character is very much sort of wrapped up in their own private dramas um, and, you know, both their internal and external dramas. Um, and that's, you know, and in terms of how I approached it, um, really the novel's started with just this idea I had this image of um a voyeuristic it was sort of a voyeuristic story of this older man who rents out his house but then like doesn't leave his property and then sort of almost like you know the early real world type of you know um reality shows you know just get this sort of you know experience of watching you know watching the family that he rents out um that was the initial seedling to the book um and I, it just felt like it wasn't going to be a short story. It was going to be novelistic. And then, um, so I started with that idea. I started with Iris' character. Then I built in Beth's character. And then I realized that I was actually telling a story, not only about these two people, but really that I wanted to tell a story about place, about region, and that in order to tell a story about place, um, I needed multiple people and I needed locals and I needed, I needed, you know, um, different, different people to have, um, narrative you know narrative power and so it grew to four points of view um and then the Svi was always in the book but he never had uh, direct he never had a, a close third point of view um until very very late I kind of realized that that was um that his voice was necessary and I needed to kind of and then his voice just kind of I sifted it in sort of as flash pieces yeah well Svi's part of the book is kind of shorter I suppose than the other four characters but I find his part of the book almost the most interesting in a way because he's almost the emotional heart of the book in a lot of ways. But he's such an interesting character because he's a, a quite religious drug dealer <laughs> and his mum has drowned in the lake um, on Tishabav. Mm -hmm. And he's kind of dealing with that the whole way through the book. But can you tell us a little bit more about him and your inspiration for writing him? Um, yeah, I mean, I think his his story is really, it's, I mean, it's, it's a cautionary tale. It's a tragic, it's a tragic story. His is a tragic story. Um, but, you know, the extent to which all of, you know, all of the characters really feel trapped in their lives and, and trapped by their circumstances and are trying to push against um, the various, um, the various walls that are containing him. He's, you know, he fell into this, you know, he was born in a community. Um, he's dealing with incredible grief. He does not fit in. Um, and he's, you know, he's pushing. Um, and then finally, I mean, tragically, you know, finally, when he's starting to um, get out, you know, um, that's when, I mean, and again, this is the, the only magical element in the novel. I don't know if it's a spoiler alert. I feel like it's only, maybe only people who speak Hebrew will under, will like catch the magic and the magical element to what, you know, his fate, um, in the book. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's a, he was just, um, I felt so, um, I don't know the other characters, um, I mean, I feel connected to all of the characters, but um, his story, um, his story just started to grow and grow for me over time. I mean, I was very curious about this whole idea of, you know, again, um, inherited, you know, inherit well, grief and inherited trauma. Um, and I mean, and I struggled for a long time with how to deal with the drowning in the book and how present to make that um, in terms of like, you know, how much do I want the drowning that happened 20 years prior to the book to push into the forward narrative? But I'm really interested in this idea of, 
um, how, you know, people, we all carry things, right? And we all come with, you know, reputation and we carry, we've got so much baggage, but that place, place also comes with reputation and baggage and, and sort of inherits this trauma. And so, so the fact that the, the place itself um, was beating with this, um, with, be, was beating with um, the death of this woman who we don't really know what exactly happened, but in, even though we don't know exactly what happened with her, um, you know, we see the fallout of, of what happened, you know, and how it plays out on her son who was, you know, left behind in a, in a culture that then, you know, gets the replacement wife and the replacement family and so mm -hmm. forth. Yeah. In terms of writing, was the novel originally conceived as a, a novel kind of thing or was it more of a short story? Um, very astute observation, Ben. <laughs> it was actually, no, but it was, it was conceived as a novel, but I'm just a shitty novelist. Um, <laughs> so I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm a short story writer. And so, um, yeah. So like I was saying earlier, when we were talking about point of view, like I started with one point of view, then I built in another point of view, then another point of view. And actually my girlfriend, I have a friend named Karen Pittleman, wonderful writer. She's actually a poet and a songwriter, a beautiful musician. She's the head headline of head singer of this band, Karen and the Sorrows. Highly highly recommend you check it out. It's a um, queer alt country. She's amazing. She was a roommate of mine in college and she read the book and she was so funny because she said to me, um, this is an earlier incarnation, um, maybe, you know, first or second draft. And she said, Sarah, it's suffering from story-itis. And she just coined that term, which made so much sense because I have, you know, I do believe that all of us as writers have our sort of natural rhythms. And I kind of still think in, I, I think in the beats of a story as opposed to the beats of a novel, which are very different beats. And so I was kind of, my chapters were kind of <laughs> falling in a certain way. I had a lot of the, the, lot of the action and a lot of the drama was happening off the stage, you know? And so it took a while for me to kind of um, become a little bit more comfortable with, with, with leaning in toward to that drama and trying to make it more, um, more novelistic. I don't know if I succeeded or not, but it definitely has that, that the fractured format was always there. We touched on it before we started recording, just about perseverance with writing. Do you want to tell us about persevering through this project? Sure. Um, so Yes. Um, <laughs> well, what can I possibly say about despair and perseverance that I haven't already said? Um, I, like I said, I'm a story writer. I've, I've, I've tried novels in the past. Um, wonderful writer and teacher of mine, Meg Willitzer has said, once you hit 80 pages of a project, you hit the point of no return. Um, and I do, I have tried to follow that. Um, I don't know that I've ever gotten to 80. Maybe I have gotten to 80 in other projects before shelving them. But um, this was the first time that I really, um, as I alluded to earlier, when I had that seedling of the idea, it just felt novelistic. It didn't feel like a story to me. And so um, I wanted to see if I could do that. So part of it, the re part of the reason why it took me so long is that I was stretching myself so far outside my comfort zone um, in terms of um, in terms of narrative. Um, but the other reason why this the book took me so long was because of those voices of self-doubt and despair, which become so loud for me and can be so, so crippling. And so, yes, um, there were years probably in the, in the murky middle where I didn't know what was going to, what was going to happen with the book. I was, you know, at a loss as to how to move forward. Um, and so much of it was just my own self instincts of self-sabotage. Um, and so ultimately I did, you know, reach the finish and then went through major revisions and shrunk the book down considerably. Um, but even then, I mean, it's all, you're always dealing with uncertainty. You never know that the book is going to, that you're going to, of course, first of all, it's not going to look like doesn't look like the book that was in my head. Right. So you got to get comfortable with the fact that it's approximation of the vision. Right. And then, and then, you know, there's, there's no guarantee of anything. And so um, sometimes I, especially when I was writing this book, 
through the Trump years, it just felt so, it, it felt indulgent and futile. Like, what am I doing? Isn't there a better use of my time? I mean, a lot, all of that. So um, I, I I don't know. I, I always to say that's maybe this is not, this is a therapy session, Ben, you didn't ask for, but <laughs> I struggled with all of that. And um, ultimately I, I arrived at the point where I told myself that even if this book doesn't sell, that I, you know, I learned, I, I learned how to sit with that discomfort and um, I think that there's a great amount of discomfort that one needs to become comfortable with when writing a novel. And so, um, yeah, come, having come out through that, I told myself even if the book didn't, if the book didn't go anywhere, um, I'd learned an important lesson both about craft, but also um, about myself. And so that's my that's my Pollyanna ending mm-hmm. to um, to a project that took a really long time. And <laughs> the rest has just been icing, really. Um, I feel quite grateful that it's out in the world. In terms of the Jewish aspects of this novel, we touched on this briefly before. Did you have some specific influences in terms of that Jewish uh, male writer kind of thing? Yeah, I mean, we'll talk about this a little bit with the when once we get into gateway books. But yeah, I mean, I grew up with I grew up with certain voices in my head that were both um, nourishing, exhilarating, and absolutely enraging. Um, and so I do think, I mean, I do think a healthy amount of rage is useful. I mean, I don't think that one should be a vindictive writer. I mean, you know, <laughs> but, but I think that you can like use, use that energy, like use that friction and tension to be in dialogue with it. And so I did, I did feel like I wanted to, um, you know, play with a lot of the, a lot of the themes, obviously, that are associated with, um, with the, you know, traditional Jewish canon, themes of, you know, isolation, alienation, um, you know, comedy, lust, all the, all these things. Um, But I wanted to, um, you know, put them through a very, you know, fiercely ferocious (laughs) feminist lens. Mm-hmm. So that was that was the agenda it, to the extent to which there was an agenda. I mean, part of it just happened organically because these are these are the writers that um, have been important to me over time. I want to mention your publisher, Tortoise Books, as well. Um, Avner Landy's book is uh, out with them, too. But how have you found working with them? Um, Jerry's a maniac in the best possible way, <laughs> in the absolute best possible way. He's a, he's a, like a one man show. He's so busy. He's just got his hands and everything. He did the cover. He did editing. He's just like, I mean, I don't know what, I don't know what he's on, but I want some, you know, <laughs> I mean, I'm joking, but um, he's, he's, he's got ter- terrific energy and he really, he really believes in the integrity of literature. He really believes in the integrity of the, of the author's vision. And um, he just, he just wants to make good books. And so it's been a pleasure. I've, I've, I've been very, very lucky. I've been with um bunch of different small presses and they've all just you know they all just have tremendous integrity and um they really believe in their authors and um yeah work work super super hard so I feel again I feel grateful and I feel grateful to Avner um for Meiselman because um as I was saying earlier um thanks to his book um I mean I was familiar with Tortoise so I have some friends who've been who you know are on the um are on the Tortoise um what do you call it? Tortoise label? Is that a word? You know, the, um, until I read, when I read Meiselman, I realized that, um, that, that this could actually be a, a good fit for me, a good home. Um, Meiselman's such a good book. Oh, it's great. It's so much fun. <laughs> Can I ask you after now that this book is out there in the world, which is really exciting, have you jumped back into writing? Are you writing something at the moment? Um, no, in theory. I mean, yes, yes. I have this, I have working on this Philadelphia novel, um, this Philadelphia project in theory, um, which I've been stalled on because right now I'm not, I'm not writing, but November one, that's my, that's my goal for myself. I'm going to go back to the page. Perfect. You got about a week. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> well, let's move on to your gateway books. What were some of the books that opened the world of literature for you? Yeah, so I, I've, there's a bunch of books that I want to shout out. Um, I, you know, grew up reading and children's literature had a huge influence on me. And I mean, like children's literature, like 
even picture books. So I was, you know, I was a reader well before I was a writer, um, but I struggled with speech. So um, I was much more comfortable with language on the page. Um, so like children's books, I mean, in the night kitchen, Sylvester and the magic pebble, um, those were all wonderful. But but Lori Siegel, I don't know if you're familiar with the writer Lori Siegel, Ben. Mm-hmm. Do you know who she is? She's mm-hmm. like, she's got to be almost 90 years old now. Um, she's an adult fiction writer um, and she's wonderful. But she also has a children's book called um, Tell Me a Mitzi, which is like, I want to say it's Jewish adjacent. I mean, I don't think there's anything directly Jewish in it, except that it's such a such a strong Jewish sensibility. This little kid Mitzi has a cold. She needs to get she needs chicken soup like what it's just but it's a wonderful book that taught me so much about voice. Um, and so that was really seminal to me as as just a little kid that um these quirky, it was, you know, these quirky stories, uh, what I was attaching to was, was sort of voice and detail and, and um, yeah, idiosyncratic detail. Um, so that was huge. Tell me a Mitzi by Laurie Siegel. Um, moving on to, um, to Malamud. Um, I meant, I mentioned I was a, a kid at summer camp, Jewish camp. And so on, on the Sabbath, um, we had like this day off, <laughs> which is, you know, there was no programming, but periodically these rabbis, you know, we would gather and rabbis would like tell us a story. Uh, <laughs> so they would read to us, they would read, um, you know, uh, they would read Ivy Singer short stories, what have you. They would read, you know, um, yeah, the wise men of Helm, like yeah, those stories. Right. They okay, so they would read to us those stories. Um, but then I remember this one rabbi read to us um, Malamud's Jewbird, um, and that so that short story was so important to me. And then um, and then the, the just the voice and the flavor, and again this like idea of just owning your shit. So. Um, Malamud, Goodbye Columbus um, was really important to me from that whole, the whole book, you know, both the novella and the stories, but um, yeah, like I read that very, very young and and that was, that was an early one. And then of course, moving into, um, like I said, I, I was brought up mostly on these, on these dudes. So Salinger's nine stories, perfect day for a banana fish. Um, again, like helped to cement my love of short stories. Um, once I got into college, um, I had a wonderful teacher, um, Lucy Corrin, um, who gave me, and she did this wonderful thing where she gave out, she gave books to all of her students, which is something, it's such a generosity. It's something that I, that I, when I was teaching undergrads, um, I would do that at the end of the semester too, because it was so, um, it was so important to me. She gave me Jane Ann Phillips uh, Black Tickets, which um was my first exposure to what we called short shorts, which is, you know, now flash fiction. And so that was the book that really made me want to be a writer. Um, and that was freshman year in college. Um, then I quickly fell in love with the modernists and I got very, very drunk on language. So, um, you know, Joyce Stein, Beckett, Wolf, um, James Baldwin. Um, James Baldwin's another country. I just cried. That language was so gorgeous. Um, and then after... After I spent time in Ireland. So yeah, like I said, Joyce, um, after college, um, I went right into magazines and an editor turned me on to um, A.M. Holmes, um, who uh, I don't I'm I'm sure you're familiar with Amy Holmes, Mm A.M. Holmes. So she. Yeah, so her work was became incredibly important to me. And so that when I actually wanted to go to graduate school, I, I tried to go to where she was teaching only to arrive um, the semester that she left. But her voice being um, so sharp, so fierce, um, so unsentimental um, was really just a huge influence um, for me. And then later I would I would also include um, the short story writer. Well, he's also a novelist, um, Richard, Richard Yates. Um, uh, 11 Kinds of Loneliness was really important to me and later uh, Revolutionary Road um, and, you know, his lit- later novel, you know, uh, Easter Parade um, as well. Grace Paley, um, again, back to this idea of voice and owning your voice, I think, which were very important lessons for me to learn. Grace Paley and Tilly Olson, I think, also would round that out um, in terms of those gateway books. Amazing. Okay. Wow. That's a lot of books. Um Sorry. <laughs> 
sorry. One one I want to ask you about briefly that you brought up at the beginning was um, Marie Sendak's In the Night Kitchen, which is an insane book. Um, and I haven't read that to my kids yet, but it's, um, yes, a children's book inspired by getting, you know, put into ovens in the Holocaust. So, yes. Yeah. That is, yes. it's a, such an interesting book. Do you want to tell us a tiny bit more about your experience reading that as a child? Um. Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting because I um I saw a lot of it as sort of this celebrate it's interesting. Well, two things. On the one hand, this book was a very early initiation to shame. Um like I remember being fascinated with the with like the naked body and being told like not to not to be so fascinated with the naked body <laughs> um in in the book but I do it's 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 interesting that you um I actually I don't think I realized that that was um I mean I see it now so clearly the the holocaust elements to it but I um and maybe that's why my father got me that book because my father is a Holocaust um, like fetishist. That's pretty much all all he reads. Um, but I I saw it really sort of as this like righteous um, celebration of of self of breaking through. And so like for me, and I actually at one point many years ago, probably about when my kids were toddlers, I did a column. I did a column for a literary journal on um, craft lessons, creative writing craft lessons one could learn from children's books. And I did one on In the Night Kitchen because I do think that there's something just so, um, so gloriously honest about um, about that book at the end. So um, yeah, and, and the humor and the rhythm and the language, um, it's like a song. And so... Um, I really responded to it. Yeah, it is a brilliant book. It's just, yeah, yeah it um, works on so many levels. Let's talk about the books you're currently reading or you've recently enjoyed or you're looking forward to. Yes. Um, so I just read, let's see, well, while, while we're on the idea of um, Holocaust, um, I'd love to shout out Jerry Stahl's book 999. Have you heard of this book? No. Tell me about it. So, um, do you, Jerry Stahl, um, are you familiar with Jerry Stahl? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So he, he, oh my gosh, I think Benny would really like this book. Um, he, um, goes on a quote unquote Holocaust bus tour, which is like, it's so it's like a 10 day, it's like a Disneyification of the Holocaust and it's a memoir and it is so dark and so funny and so searing and so brutal and so sharply of this moment. And um, I feel like it's being criminally underread and I highly, highly recommend it. Um, I think it's a really important book. Um, it's memoir he started it I think he went in 2016 I want to say he started no that's a big fat lie that's a big fat lie my my mind is is a sieve um but um he recently in the last couple of years he went um on this on this um his new tour of holocaust yeah yes yes and so he will tell you um yes about uh the the um the restaurant at you know Buchenwald and so forth I mean it is it is it is dark um and um yes please check it out so that's a that's a big one and I actually listened to it on audio he narrates it I think it's wonderful I've been doing a lot of audio because my eyesight has gotten so poor and I read all day long on the screens when I'm teaching and I'm editing so I've been enjoying a lot um on audio. Um, another book I just read on audio, actually, um, Madi Friedman's Who by Fire about Leonard Cohen's visit to um, to uh, Israel during the Yom Kippur War. Very interesting. Um, I just read Human Blues by Elisa Albert, which is wild and brilliant and hilarious and unlike anything I've ever read. Um, 
Seth Rogoff's Thin Rising Vapors. Um, Seth is a friend of mine. We're actually co-editing an anthology later this year called Smashing the Tablets, um, which is going to be radical retellings of the of the Hebrew Bible. Um, but he has a novel out on sagging meniscus called Thin Rising Vapors that I think you would love. Um, it's brilliant. Um, and I also criminally underread. Um, right now I am reading um, Peter Orner's latest book. Um, still no word from me from you. I don't know. Um, you know Peter Orner? You do, no, right? I don't. No, I don't know him. Oh, 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 great. We're going to talk about Peter Orner. Oh. <laughs> um, Peter Orner is probably my favorite living writer. Um, uh, and this is, he does his, his brilliant short story writer, brilliant novelist, um, but has also been putting out some, some um, nonfiction books. So this is his newest um, and it's beautiful. I'm only about 60 pages in, but it's beautiful. Um, so that's what I'm, that's current. Amazing. Okay. Wow. You've given me a shopping list. I like it. <laughs> We'll take a quick break here on Beyond the Zero. We're speaking with Sarah Lipman. This episode is brought to you by my interview with Kanye West. Here's a sneak peek. Also, when you said I hadn't read this book, I actually haven't read any book. Reading is like eating Brussels sprouts for me. Coming soon on Beyond the Zero. We're back on Beyond the Zero. It's time for Sarah's Desert Island Books. Yeah, I thought about this. I really thought. (laughs) I wanted to, you know, so Desert Island. Okay. I don't know if I have 10 here, but I'll, I'll give you some. So I was <laughs> thinking very much about sort of my emotional state on a desert island, Ben. Um, <laughs> <laughs> not that one wants to think about um, one's emotional state, but okay. So, so first of all, I was thinking about taking a book or two um, that I'd never read, but I really should read. So like some, one of these doorstop novels that, you know, Um, Maybe I should be embarrassed to admit that I've never read, never read War and Peace, never read Don Quixote, never read Lonesome Dove. So I was thinking, like, give me something new. Um, And, you know, preferably if I have audio on a desert island, that would be great because my eyes are going to need a break. Um, I hope I get glasses on my desert (laughs) island. (laughs) Um, So I would of, of course, I would I would take Ulysses with me because that's that's always been the one that I say is sort of the the desert island book, the one that you can just keep rereading. And it's um, constantly, um, constantly nourishing, constantly giving back, um, constantly giving you a whole a whole new take. So um, Ulysses, I probably would take Thomas Mann's uh, Magic Mountain. I don't know. I don't know if I would. But it was when I when I read it, it was the kind of book that I feel like, oh, yeah, maybe I would need that on um, on a desert island. Uh, if I had access to assuming I have access to plants in nature, I would take my, Michael Pollan's book, How to Change Your Mind, which is about um, uh, psychedelics and psilocybin and um and benefits on for mental health, particularly for depression and anxiety, both of which um, I struggle with. Um, it's also a great, great book. I don't know if you've read that book. Um, no, but I'm, I've, I've read, I've read about the book, and it's such an interesting concept. And yeah, it's a great book. It's a great book, um, and it's really also a comfort. I think, I think that's probably the overarching theme of how I would arrange these desert island books by assuming that I'm alone, that I would want, I would want books that would give me some, some sense of comfort. I mean, maybe Magic Mountain is not so comforting, but um, I would take two serious ladies, Jane Bowles's novel, um, which is just quirky and wonderful and hilarious. And I read it. um, I read it every, every couple of years over and over again. I never tire of it. Um, I would take uh, The Waves by Virginia Woolf for language. Um, and I would take Peter Orner um, because of his heart and his sense sense sentences um, and his humanity. Um, I love his fiction. So I would definitely throw in um, a collection of his, but um, I would also take probably um, 
the book before, um, well, I haven't finished still, um, no word from you, but his book, um, am I alone here? I would take, because it's his memoir on reading. Um, and so then if I could do a cheat with my desert Island, I can include all the books that he mentions <laughs> in his book that would continue to nourish me. So he talks a lot about, he talks about Kafka, Babel, uh, Isaac Babel, um, Mavis Gallant and so forth, because his reading continues to furnish um new reading um for me um and again it's all about generosity and sort of the 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 outlook that i think i would need if i were all alone so um edgar carrot for the same reason i feel like his he's he's got such a um such a generous sensibility um kent haruf's posthumous novel our souls at night um it's a beautiful source of comfort um, I would probably want to bring some poets, <laughs> um, maybe Bernadette Mayer, Ross Gay, um, maybe Deborah Eisenberg's short story collection, because I think that would be good company. Um, well, I don't know where I am, if I've done 10 yet. I could bring some some James Salter, even though I grapple with him um, and I, I do, I would fight him, but I think he it would also nourish me. Um, and then maybe for shits and giggles, throw in Sabbath's theater, um, throw in the great classic Marjorie Morningstar, and then perhaps close it out with Nicole Krause's History of Love. Brilliant. Okay. Your Desert Island is pretty well stocked. I like it. <laughs> Very good. I hope so. I'm a little neurotic, so I want to be prepared. <laughs> Before we wrap it up, do you want to tell us where we can go out and buy Letch and where we can get in touch with you online? And also um, that anthology you mentioned, when is that coming out and who couldn't get that through? Um, so the anthology Smashing the Tablets is, um, we're putting it together now. It's coming out with SUNY Press um, and I believe it's slated for fall of 2024. 20, um, and it's wonderful. We have terrific contributors um, on that project. So I'm really excited about it. Um, my book um, is available where books are sold. I think, I hope, um, you know, I you can get it at bookshop.org. Um, you can get it at my publisher's website. You can get it at the, you know, big behemoth um, on the internet. Um, and hopefully it's in some, some bookstores as well. Um, I, I don't know. I haven't, um, I haven't seen them um, on the shelf. Um, haven't been out to bookstores <laughs> um, to check, but I, um, I will be at a bookstore tomorrow. So I will check then. Um, yeah. And I'm, I, I fool around on the internet quite a bit. So you can find me um, on Twitter at Sarah Lipman. Um, you can find me on my website, sarahlipman.com. And um, there's a contact sheet there and I'd love to hear from you. Brilliant. It's been such a pleasure talking to you and I highly recommend Letch. It's a really great read. I think over summer, it's just a fantastic summer book for people. <laughs> Thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure talking with you. I really appreciate you taking the time. Thanks again to Sarah Littman. Check out the show notes for all the details. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at beyondzeropod, and you can email us at beyondzeropod at gmail.com. You can support this podcast by signing up to our Patreon. Go over to patreon.com and search for Beyond the Zero. We'll be back with your next episode next week.